want to thank you for joining us today. Dr. Bartholomew, thank you for being with us. Uh, I want to thank the Kern Family Foundation for its generous support of our lecture series. And we're going to take a few moments today to get to know Dr. Bartholomew a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask him a little bit about his life story and then about a couple of writing projects he's working on. And then we'll leave the remainder of our time, the bulk of our time, for question and answer. I wanted to let you know that if you need to step away to go to class, we'll understand. Dr. Bartholomew will not be too offended. And uh, we will we'll, uh, continue our conversation. So, um, Craig, you were not born in the United States of America. <laughs> you, uh, you, you are uh, a South African. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about your life story and uh, the journey that mm. the Lord put you on to bring you to be a, a theologian who now resides in Canada? Mm. So I would uh, often introduce myself uh, as a white, English-speaking, earl-grey-drinking African. So the African component is a very important part of my identity. And uh, I grew up uh, in South Africa, in the English community in South Africa. And I was in a, grew up in a nominal Anglican home, read non-Christian home, and uh, where sports were really what we did, especially tennis. And in case you haven't noticed, Andy Murray is now number one in the rankings, so I, I bring that to your attention, <laughs> uh, which is really good news, I think. But uh, so, and then, uh, you know, I, I guess if you'd asked me if I was a Christian, I, I would have thought I was. But uh, when I was at high school, I was invited to the youth group of, uh, by a friend of mine. And it was there that I had came, it wasn't a good message, you know, the Spirit often works through us. And we're not always great. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, what happened at that uh, youth meeting was I came to the realization that being a Christian is about a personal relationship with Christ and not just doing certain things. And that was the transformative thing for me and really started that seeking after God. And so then I started attending youth group, attending church, and I struggled with assurance because the type of evangelism I was converted under was very much the sort of inviting Christ into your life. And then you're kind of looking inside, you know, to, to check, oh, well, are you there now? And it was really, one of my pastors gave me uh, those, you know, those many volumes of Lloyd-Jones sermons to read. And, and that was just enormously helpful because uh, under the conviction of the Spirit and my sinfulness, it set before me the extraordinarily glorious objective work of Christ and that nothing that I could do could save me, but that Christ had done it all. And the question was, you know, on what am I depending uh, to secure my salvation? And so then one can start to sing those hymns with great gusto, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So that was, uh, so, so I was converted and out of a non-Christian family, I was playing a lot of uh, provincial tennis and finding it very hard to integrate my Christian life with my sports life. And part of the reason for that was I was in a church where evangelism was everything of a very particular sort. 
So there was no discipleship. There was no one to help me as a uh, introverted adolescent going on secular tennis tours with some kind of you know wisdom to how do you live that? All that I was getting every week from the pulpit was this enormous guilt for not evangelizing the guy I'm sitting next to on the bus when I'm going home from school. And I think, uh, so I have a book coming out on called uh, the, uh, the Contours of the Caperian Tradition, A Systematic Introduction. And one of the things Coper does, which I love, is he gets from Calvin, who gets from the church fathers, the notion of the church as our mother. And I don't know if you know this about Abraham Kuyper, but uh, he was doing his doctorate in theology and was not converted. And then his, he, he thought he was the world authority on all things theological, didn't hesitate to uh, advise his fiancée on how you know, stupid she was when it came to things of faith. And she then got hold of the best-selling novel in Britain around that time, uh, The Heir of Redcliffe, which was by an Anglo-Catholic who was in uh, Pusey's uh, parish. And she did for Anglo-Catholicism what Newman, Keeble, and Pusey did theologically. And it was through that novel that Caper was converted it's very interesting to me. So through Anglo-Catholicism, he got a vision of the church as mother who would be there through every stage of a human's life. You know? Now, the point about this is that when you're converted, it's very hard. I think you shouldn't be expected to, to distinguish the father's voice from the mother's voice, the church. You tend to collapse them into one and the church mediates the voice of the Father to you. It's only as you mature that you realize, oh my goodness, my mother was a bit dysfunctional. You know, she wasn't <laughs> infallible. <laughs> you know, I still love her when you mature, but she, you know, she might have led me astray. So, you know, I, I was in South Africa, uh, you know, a young, young guy, uh, just passionate about Christ and the Word and Scripture, but it was all just a very rigid type of evangelism. You know, and I was going on tennis tours, non-Christian family, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the other thing is that I was in, uh, right, in, I mean, as we all were in South Africa, in the midst of a country built on racism. So everything depended on the color of your skin, the way it reflected light. And the Christianity I was converted into was real, uh, we had Bible studies, lovely, devout Christians, deeply committed to evangelism and mission, had absolutely nothing to say to the racism of our culture. In all my years as a member of our uh, evangelical churches and as a minister, I cannot ever remember once hearing a sermon calling for repentance from racism. We called for repentance from beating your husband, from beating your wife, you know, whatever you wanted, drugs, all that kind of thing. There was never a contextual call for repentance from racism. So I uh, did my national service as a chaplain. Uh, because of this kind of Christianity, I was saved in. 
the only, if you really loved Christ, you could only serve him full time, right? I mean, who wants to be a part-time service of, servant of Christ? And in this kind of Christianity, that meant the pastorate or the mission field. It was never thought that you could serve Christ full-time apart from those areas. So I went to seminary. Uh, I went to uh, Oxford, did my second degree there. I did my military training. And during that time, I started to rethink the relationship of the gospel to South Africa. And it was through, uh, at that stage, people like Francis Schaeffer, Jim Packer, and rereading those type of things. And a, a moment of extraordinary illumination for me was being able to name the intuition that the gospel relates to all of life as a worldview. And then the huge thing, which of course could get you into literally terribly serious trouble, was the realization that that includes politics. And so I, I don't think I was ever, I mean, I was sort of middle of the right politically, but, you know, it changed my preaching. And so I, I have a little book out on, on preaching and the metaphor that I use uh, for preaching, which I think is tremendously important, is you have to land the plane. And so I've thought a lot over the years, how do you preach contextually? You know, so if, you, if you're preaching on Galatians where Paul defends his apostleship, many of our gurus would tell us that's what you've got to preach from that text. Okay, except that most of our congregations are not struggling with whether Paul is an apostle that can be trusted or not. So, in my opinion, you land the plane at the intersection of the trajectory of the text and the congregation. There's both of those, so it's a contextual landing of the plane. But in South Africa, in the evangelical world, to a large extent, with some uh, very uh, notable but few exceptions, the plane was never being landed. So every, all our white congregations were awash with racism. They were genuine Christians, they were converted, they were attending Bible studies, and they were awash with racism. And none of our pastors would finger it. So uh, some years later, I was in Britain speaking at a church and uh, about South Africa. And a woman came up to me and said, uh, Craig, how was it? that evangelicals could not see the problem with racism in South Africa. And that, that is a question that has really stuck with me. And I, I, I like to talk about South Africa because the whole world could see that we were uh, immersed in racism. And most evangelicals in South Africa could not see it. And now here comes the, the kick in the butt, as it were, for you guys. Uh, do you think American culture has idols? You see, see, in South Africa, our idols were, for the rest of the world, they were crystal clear. They were staring us in the face every day. We couldn't see them. So it's a very interesting question for me in Canada to ask, and in America, you know, what are your idols? And uh, are you conscious of them? 
or have you developed a type of Christianity as we did in South Africa, which often explicitly endorsed and supports the idols of the day? I mean, that is truly scary, that you can develop a theology which endorses the idols of the day. So I think so, yeah. So, so being African, I go back for two months every year. I just love it. I mean, it's visceral. It's, uh, we live over the, hanging over the edge of a cliff all the time. Uh, but it's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, Africa is the, the new center of Christianity. You know, the statistics uh, during the 80s were something like uh, 16,000 people being converted in Africa every day. A friend of mine was talking to an Anglican bishop uh, in, uh, in Africa, and he said, we don't plant a new church, we plant a new diocese. You know? So, uh, uh, so we, the West now, you know, is the... Uh, this is, you know, Lam and Sana and others discuss this in such intriguing ways. The Africa has now taken over what in the West we are busy discarding. You know, so, so this is very, very interesting times culturally. And uh, so those intrigue me. You know, I look at this election and I think to myself, you know, I, I really do. I, I, some time ago I was in a public dialogue with Mike Goheen, the Dutch economist Bob Chotsvard and myself on what time is it in our culture? And I suggested that the near economic meltdown of 2008 was not a blip. George W. Bush and others were trying to tell us it was a blip. And if we just got out and spent uh, the blip, we would get back on this unsustainable trajectory towards consumer utopia. And I was suggesting it was a sign. And then a very intelligent student of mine put up his hand and he said, but have there been other signs? See, so, you know, I think those are things that I want to linger with. And uh, uh, certainly as an outsider, uh, I don't think I've ever seen anything as bizarre as this American election. Uh, it just is uh, heartbreaking that the, the country that is the leader of the world has had to parade this for nearly two years before the nations of the world. So it's a sign, but I, you know we need to reflect what is it a sign of. So I'm very proud to be an African, to not having been born in America. <laughs> I can't sing with Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> although I do like his music. <laughs> We got a shout out to Bruce Springsteen out of that. So speaking of idolatry, let's talk about modernity for a moment. You've got a book coming out uh, with a friend of yours entitled Beyond the Modern Age and Archaeology of Modernity. Can you take us on a brief archaeological mm. dig mm. to wet our taste buds, mm. just to mix metaphors, so that we'll uh, want to go out and, and uh, investigate the book? Oh, yeah. And buy it. On and buy it, of course. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, uh, a big interest of mine, and, and I do think uh, for pastors, if you're going to land the plane, 
I don't think you need to become an expert on culture, but you do need to be trained and well-informed on cultural analysis. So otherwise, you know, as people have often said, you're going to say to Nicodemus, you know, would you like some living water? And then when the, at the woman at the well, you're going to be badgering her, saying to her, you must be born again. You know, so, uh, so a, a big question for me, because I think, uh, and this is, you know, it's the heart of, of th- this is not an anti-evangelistic or anti-missional insight. This is a quintessential missional insight. That uh, for the Old Testament scholars, we know that, you know, when the prophet the prophet is not, for, first of all, a foreteller. He's a forth-teller. He brings the word of God to the people of God in this situation. So context is really crucial for proclamation, for preaching, for living the gospel. So a question then emerges, you know, what time is it in, in America? What time is it in the West? And I think uh, there are multiple answers to that. I think it is a time of crisis. So, so one of the things, you know, however we voted or what we think about this election, I couldn't help, you know, and I, I, I'm glad I didn't do this uh, in chapel, but I just thought, you know, this election reminds me so much of the book of the judges. Because, you know, by the time, and, and please, I'm not uh, deliberately taking sides here, but the illusion will be obvious, you know, when Samson is emerging as your deliverer, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> what happens in the book of the Judges is there's the, the, the spiral, but there's also a downward spiral. And as, the, as things unravel, the deliverers get weirder and weirder and more like what is on the ground. You know... So my point is, if Samson is, is emerging as your deliverer, you know, first of all, you thank God for a deliverer, and then you worry like heck about what's coming down the pipeline, because you're in deep, deep, deep trouble if you've got to that point, you know, and uh, maybe Delilah could also be in folk chow or something, I don't know. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, so I do think, you know, see, and, and I think uh, uh, this, this is why, you know, I just love coming to America. So when I cross the border, generally, although flying into LaGuardia didn't really do that for me this time, but generally I have a sense of vitality, of life, you know, of the amazingness of America. But I think America is in a, in a, in a transition time. And, and a part of it is that modernity, I think this experiment that has governed the West for about 200 years, is showing a lot of signs of unraveling. So, uh, so you know, and I think uh, 2008 was a sign. I think 9-11 was a sign. I think this election is a sign. Now, what they are a sign of, I think Americans, where it relates to you, you have to do the hard work of interpretation. But I think in general, we could say they're a sign of a deep malaise and crisis. And uh, uh, there is one person who has compared Western-style economics to 
being on the back of a lion or, or a tiger that is just going at full speed. And th there is that sense, I think, in Western culture that uh, things are out of control. And Leslie Newbegin heard this illustration and uh, he, one thought he was snoozing, but he was so sharp and immediately he alert, and he said, so what do you do? Do you try and ride the tiger? Or do you fall off? You see, you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It's, uh, you know, so, so I think there is this. Uh, so what we have tried to do in this book is to, part one is an analysis of the four or five major worldviews that have emerged out in and shaped the modern world and continue to be at play in it. So this is an attempt to move beyond simplistic <clears throat> cultural analysis using terms like modernity, post-modernity, to something a bit, quite a bit more nuanced. So, you know, I think we need a degree of sophistication. So we have uh, uh, the classical modern worldview, the structural critical, the cultural humanist, and the postmodern. And we, in that, we have a discussion of ideologies, which I think is, is very important. In part, so this is an attempt at, at a much more nuanced analysis of modernity. You know, so, so how have we arrived where we are? I mean, that, that's my question with this election, and many of you would give much better answers than me. I mean, to watch this thing unfold, you just kept asking yourself, you know, uh, how on earth did we get to this point? Now, of course, there's good reasons why we have got to this point. Some of us might just not have noticed them. And so with modernity, you know, you want to know what's driving our culture. You know, if it, if it is in crisis, how serious is it? And so on. And also the other thing is modernity is not all bad. Okay, there's tons about modernity that is just phenomenal and great. So there's parts of technology which I love. At the same time, you just can't help but feel that technology is completely out of control. You know, it's uh, to walk across the lawn and have this jolly thing looking at us from above, you know, buzzing in one's ear. And, you know, just now all of us will have our own drones, you know, and uh, it's just madness that, that is going on. And there's a great film with Helen Mirren, one of my favorite actresses, Eye in the Sky, if any of you seen it, about drone warfare. I mean, a, a remarkable, remarkable film. But uh, so in, this, in part two, what we do is we look at resources that could help us heal and move beyond modernity. So it's beyond the modern age. It's not back into the medieval era, but it's an attempt to move beyond into a much healthier place culturally. <clears throat> And there we look at resources uh, uh, like uh, uh, Philip Reif, the Jewish uh, sociologist. Uh, Bruce knows about his work. And if you don't, I think uh, that was an incredible discovery for me to discover Philip Reif's work. Uh, we look at the work of Catholics like René Girard, we look at the work of uh, a Jewish philosopher like Len Goodman of Vanderbilt University on pluralism. And so, you know, really what we're trying to show 
is actually, uh, and then also looking, you know, at, at uh, ancient resources. So I have a whole section on uh, Old Testament wisdom as a resource for the crisis that we're in. And then what we do in part three, which is really Chotzvard's work, is we map out the interconnectedness of the problems facing humankind. And then we try and apply our analysis in what I think is a magnificent chapter at the end to the problem of climate change. So that's going to, of course, be controversial uh, amongst Christians. But uh, So this is a, a real attempt at uh, getting into the, the concrete stuff, yeah.